0: Would you find Second Samuel and chapter number nine in your Bible? Second Samuel, chapter number nine. Second Samuel, chapter number nine. I want to read the first well, the whole chapter. there's only 13 verses. You follow along as I read. And David, as King David, said, "Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness?" For Jonathan's sake, Saul, the previous king, Jonathan, his son, you remember the story. And there was in the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he, he said, Thy servant is he. The king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul? That means any related, any relation at all, any relatives that they may show the kindness of God unto him. And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. Now this would have been big surprise news. The king said unto him, where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, behold, he is in the house of Macher the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Then the king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Matur, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, that's the man who we're talking about, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David. He fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul, thy father. And thou shalt eat the bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant, that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him. Thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mehibosheth, thy servant's son, shall eat bread all the way at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Now Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. Titled this message, From the Land of Nothing to the Table of the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak through me your word. There may be some who don't know Christ as your Savior. This morning, would you arrest their attention? And may all of us have listening ears to what you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. From the land of nothing to the table of the king. Now, when a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay, that's called a wage. So, when a person competes and with an opponent and receives. A trophy for his performance that's called a prize when a person receives appropriate recognition for his service or achievements that's called an award but when a person is not capable of either earning a wage and can win no prizes and deserves no award yet still receives something good now that's called grace Grace is when, you, is when you don't get what you deserve and you get what you don't deserve. And has often been described as the unmerited favor of God. See, e- easy to describe this way. Did you ever not get a spanking when you had one coming? Huh. That's grace. Grace. Did you ever, not not people in this room, but other people, have you observed other people going too fast down the road and past the motorcycle cop looking at you with his radar gun and knew they deserved a ticket but didn't get it? That's called grace. So all of you in the room who drive know what I'm talking about. Think of the Bible as a photo album with pictures filled of God's grace. Starting at the beginning with Adam and Eve who stood before God guilty, right? And the sin, the sin that they committed changed their lives. It changed the world forever. And just a sad day for humanity as they fell. And think, what would God do now? And would he, his vengeance and his judgment now be executed on his creation? But yet in an act that pictured for all of us the ultimate act of grace that was going to come, God killed the innocent to clothe the guilty. For the first time, we're introduced to grace. Think of Noah who wrote out... the. Tremendous storm in a boat that we could name grace. And it wasn't his intellect or his ingenuity or his charisma, his personality that bought him a ticket on this boat. It was simply that God was showing man in the midst even of judgment. There is grace. Think of Abraham who placed his only son on this altar Of sacrifice. And he's going to do what God asked him to do. He's going to take the life of his son. But God had something far greater in mind. Than the the Abraham would offer his son. God had in mind a picture of grace. Move to the New Testament and think of a man named Barabbas who sits in a prison cell and the sentence had already been passed and death by crucifixion was imminent. In fact, they're constructing his cross as he's peering out the bars and only one word can describe what happened when Barnabas or Barabbas walked away totally free and that's grace. What we read here in 2 Samuel 9 is this striking image of grace. And you see the setting here is this palace of King David. And can you just imagine in your mind's eye that this this palace, this elaborate, wonderful palace, gold and bronze fixtures are gleaming from the walls and there's... Lofty wooden ceilings crowned each, spacious rooms. And now, in this huge banquet room, David, King David, is sitting and his children, and they're gathering for their evening meal. And David's son Absalom is there, and he's tanned and handsome. His beautiful daughter, Tamar is there. All his children are present. And can you imagine that this call for this meal is is given out. And David then, he begins to scan the room to make sure all of the participants are there and ready to eat. But one figure is absent. And then in the distance, we can hear clump. Scrape, clump, scrape. And this sound, it's filling the chamber that's echoing from the hall. And finally, the person appears at the door. And he slowly shuffles to his seat. Mephibosheth takes his seat. And think of this. The tablecloth covers his twisted feet. And now the feast can begin. You know the story of David and King Saul's son, Jonathan. And they had this unique friendship during the reign of Saul. And in spite of the fact that Jonathan's dad, Saul, hated David, Jonathan loved him. They were Their hearts were bombed together. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel 18 that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And all the while that Saul tried to kill David, Jonathan did all he could to preserve his life and to intervene. After a period of time, Saul and Jonathan are both killed in battle against the Philistines. And now David has become king, just over Judah in Hebron. Abner, who was one of Saul's captains, takes Ishbosheth, who was one of Saul's sons, and makes him king over Israel in this, for a time, divided kingdom. And these two armies, then they fight, and David eventually is victorious. And he reigns over all Israel now, and he reigns over all Israel for 33 years. At the time of Saul's death, you have to imagine that there's a lot of chaos and and there's a lot of things going on and there's a lot of fear, what's going to happen? And, And this grace of God starts to really take hold and starts to show us, we're starting to show this picture of God's grace. And those who are left in the house of Saul are fearful for their lives and they're they're certain that they are going to be killed. And it would have been in the custom at that time that the conquering king, he's going to kill anybody from the previous kingdom who could possibly take his throne. Wipe out all the heirs. Jonathan had a boy. He had a five-year-old son named Mephibosheth. It was a boy that David didn't know. And in the confusion and the chaos that was going on, as the news comes that Saul is dead and Jonathan is dead, the kingdom's in an uproar. What's going to happen? This Mephibosheth is grabbed up by this nurse. You can read about in chapter 4 and verse number 4. This nurse in the confusion grabs him and begins to run and falls. And she either falls and drops him or she falls on him. Whatever happens, he is from that point for the rest of his life, notice it's put lame on his feet. And by the time we read about him in chapter 9, he's gone from five to now he's a grown man. And he's found refuge all these years away from the kingdom and away from David in a place called Lodibar. I want to talk to you about that and what was going on at that time and just see a picture of God's grace. And hopefully you'll see if you don't know him, the grace that God has bestowed on you. First of all this, I want you to see Mephibosheth's. Condition. His condition, the reason Mephibosheth is in the place he's in, where it says he's lame on his feet, is because as a result of another person's fall. Someone else fell, and Mephibosheth now is suffering the consequences. And when you think about it, isn't that just like what's happened to you and I, spiritually speaking? I am affected, you are affected by the fall of another. In Romans chapter 5, wherefore is by one man sin into the world and death by sin. Death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Because of Adam's fall, you're a sinner. Because of Adam, every human that's ever been born was born into sin. You don't have to do any sin to be a sinner. You are a sinner by birth. You sin because you are a sinner. You don't sin to be a sinner. You're a sinner, therefore you sin. Because Adam fell, all then have been fallen. Now you say, "Well, I know someone though, Bro Ted, and they are good. They do all good stuff, and they're moral, and they do good things, and they help people, and they're nice to cats. That's a really a good person when you think about it." Can I tell you, they're a sinner. But what about those who've sacrificed and done great things and been given their lives or risked their lives to to help the fellow man and to do good things and moral things and given even literally given their lives to others? They're sinners. The Bible's clear: there is none good, no, not one. No one's good enough to make it heaven on their own. No one's good enough to get to God on their own. Our sin has made us. Fallen. We are fallen. We are sinners. We are fallen man. No matter how good every now and then we may show ourselves the goodness just shows the contrast. We're fallen. We're sinners. And our sin has affected us morally by that. I mean, I can't be what I want to be because I'm sinful. It's affected us physically because we're all going to die. And it's also affected us spiritually. It's separated us from God this fall. Adam's fall has made me a sinner and you born a sinner. Not only that, think of of Mephibosheth who's who's lame. He's unable to help himself. Helpless. Think of that. Think of that spiritually. How does a person help himself spiritually? How does a person who's fallen help himself? Brother Ted cannot a person... Just, if I go to church every day, if I go to church all the time, cannot my sins be forgiven? Can I not do enough good things for God to see that I'm trying and be right then with God? Can I not read my Bible over and over? How about if I get baptized so much I'm pruning? (laughs) If I join the church, if I follow a list of things, If I memorize all the catechisms and all the verses, is not somehow God then going to say, now I'm good enough? The truth is, there's nothing a person. You're helpless. You can't help yourself. There's nothing you can do for yourself because you're helpless. But there is one who did what you can't do for yourself. And he bridged that gulf between you and God not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Can you picture Mephibosheth living in Lodabar always every day fearing judgment, fearing for his life, never knowing when his hiding place might be discovered Never knowing when the King David might call for him, where they finally find there is one of Saul's heirs yet alive. And my identity is going to be known and always in the back of his mind wondering at any moment I'm going to be found out and my life is going to be over. And that impending judgment always over him like a cloud. Somebody's going to find me out here and they're going to realize who I am and my life is going to be over. It's like living under this cloud of judgment. Sadly to say, there's a lot of people who live their whole lives wondering, thinking at any moment, God is just waiting to pounce on me and flick me off this earth. God's just waiting to pour his judgment on me. God is just waiting to wipe me off the earth. And while it is true, there is judgment. Judgment. For those who don't know him. If you don't know him, the Bible says you are condemned already. You're condemned already. If you don't know Christ, for sure, judgment is waiting. In fact, the Bible says it is pointed unto man once to die, and after this, there's judgment. There's no escaping, there's no hiding. Somebody it's like you're not gonna be found. You're gonna be found. It's awaiting, there's no avoiding. But you can't read scripture. And get the idea that this is what God has been waiting for. The time when he can finally judge you. That's not the case. At all. You remember the story of the prodigal. And even if you don't know much about the Bible. That's familiar. That concept. The prodigal ran away from home. He took his money and he ran. And he went and wasted it. And he got out there and enjoyed himself until it was gone and he was eating with pigs. And he finally, the Bible says, came to his senses and he headed home. And you know all the way home what he was wondering. How bad is my punishment going to be? How bad is it going to be? I'm reminded, you know, when I was in school, it was different. A lot of things were different. One was this. We got a report card and it weren't online. You had to carry it home. It's like carrying your own death sentence home and handing it to your parents. And they had to sign it. You remember that? They had to sign that they actually looked at it. And I knew my penmanship wasn't good enough to write Hannah Inman. No. So I know the feeling that the prodigal must have had as he trudges home. Knowing he's blown it. How bad is my punishment going to be? He was half right. Because the father was waiting. But not to punish. It was grace. And he received him, the Bible says, not as a servant but as a son did you know what lodibar means this this little hideaway this place in the middle of nowhere here's what it means no pasture or land of nothing in other words this was not where you go vacation this was not like some garden spot, some vacation paradise. This was an obscure, barren, good place to hide, but a depressing place to live. And this is where he found he could hide out from David and from possible judgment or execution. And Lodibar was the home of Mephibosheth for all these years. Depressing land of Nothing. As I thought about that simple definition, I thought about this. You know, any place that we go that is outside of Jesus is the land of nothing. Oh, that's not true, Brother Ted. I watch TV. (laughs) Wait, You don't watch TV anymore. I watch the screen with something on it. I don't know what you call it. The internet. And I watched. And I've seen people on there whose lives are so exciting and they have so much stuff and they're famous for being famous, and they have wealth, and they seem to have everything that you could possibly have. And man, they're just so happy and joyful and fulfilled. Can I tell you they're in Lodi Bar? They're not happy. If they're so happy, why do they need stimulants and alcohol and other things and drugs? And why do they need more exciting relationships and bigger toys and more stuff and more excitement? Because everything, listen, everything the world has to offer out here, everything that's outside of Christ eventually leads to the land of nothing. So that's not true. All right. Read Solomon. Just read it. He figured it out. You know why? Because he had everything. I mean, literally, everything was at his fingertips, every pleasure, every possible thing that a person could buy or have, he had it. And in the end, he found I'm as dry and empty as Lodi Bar. In fact, he said, his words, I hated life. Because outside of Christ, even the excitement and pleasure that's out here leads to the land of nothing know what Mephibosheth's name is here's what it means out of my mouth proceeds reproach not only is he living in the land of nothing his very name says out of my mouth proceeds reproach not only is he crippled Unable to help himself, living in fear of constant and coming possible judgment in this barren and unforsaken country, his very name reveals this is how I am. My grandfather Saul died in disgrace. He was rejected by God as king, and he lived a life that had no joy. And he's looking on his past, and it's painful. I have no promise of any future. My very name is reproach. I'm so glad. God doesn't care. First of all, what your past has been. God doesn't care what condition or what place you find yourself. And God doesn't even care what what name you have or what name you give yourself. God's grace extends to the lowest of the low. Did you see how Mephibosheth described himself? I'm a dead dog. How far down could you be that God's grace wouldn't find you? You can't get that far down. How far, how wicked could you be that God would finally turn his back on you? You can't get that wicked. You can't get that far away. Who is it that would be unloved? Who is it that would be unloved and unwanted? So unloved and unwanted that God would never hear their prayers. Can I tell you, there is no one like that. God knows your name. He knows where you are. He knows what you've done. He knows everything there is to know about you. But here's the glaring truth in all of that. All of that knowledge he has. Yet he still loves you. That's grace. That's grace. You know what I like about Southwest Baptist? And I'll be here 30 years this summer. And I was like five when we came here. 30 years. One thing that continually makes me happy. Is I continually see people. People walk through the doors of this church who don't look the part. You know what I mean? And whose past maybe is right there for everybody to see. And if we ever come to the point of a, as a church where we stop seeing people come through these doors who obviously have a past and don't know all the rules and, and don't know the words to the hymns If we ever stop seeing those people come through here, something's wrong. Because God's grace reaches everybody. And I continually, I hope, will always be a church where people can come who don't know all the words to Amazing Grace and don't know all the rules and yet feel the love of God through us. I hope we're always at church. Mephibosheth was in a terrible condition. But there's God's provision. There came this time, obviously in chapter number nine, that David was moved to show kindness to his old enemy, Saul. He's gone. Jonathan's gone. The house of Saul is gone. And David then, he asked his servant Ziba, and Ziba had evidently been a servant of Saul. He says, Ziba, is there anyone left? Is there even one person left that I could show kindness. And Ziba reveals this long held secret. David Jonathan has a son and he's alive and he's in Lodibar. And David did what no king in those times would ever do. And that's that he not just let an enemy's heir live. He reaches out and he to his Enemy's grandson, a potential competitor to the throne, and he changed his life forever. Now, why would he go to such great lengths to do that? Two reasons. One is his love. He loved Jonathan. And because he loved Jonathan, he loved Jonathan's child. And as a Right there, a picture. I'm seeing all kinds of pictures, are you not, in this text. There's a picture of God's love. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And people can do some wonderful things out of love for sure. And we've all witnessed some things that people do because they love someone and they do wonderful things and even heart-riching things and incredibly sacrificial things. But nothing compares to the love of God. He showed us in his creation. He shows us every day because he lets us breathe his air. And he makes our lungs go in and out and our heart beat one more time. And if you're sitting here saying, God's never showed his love to me. I don't feel it. I don't see it. I don't think he's ever revealed his love to me one time. Can I tell you that the cross tells you everything you need to know? And the song goes like this. In letters of crimson, God wrote His love. He proved it when he hung on the cross. Did he do that because I deserve it? Did Mephibosheth deserve anything? No. Did he do that because he owed it to me? Did Mephibosheth, was he owed anything? No. Did I somehow earn it? Did Mephibosheth earn it? No. It was simply grace that caused David to take the first step towards Mephibosheth. Without thinking of his physical condition or his limitations, he wasn't perfect, but God takes us as we are, praise the Lord. Without thinking about his name, the reproach proceeds out of his mouth without even thinking about his name. No thought to that, David received him. Aren't you glad that God overlooks what we are and sees what we can be? Even without thinking about his home, about where he's been living in Lodibar, a land of nothing, a God forsaken place. With no thoughts of that, aren't you glad that God reaches down to where we were? The Bible describes, David describes as miry clay and puts us on a rock. So now we have David showing love to his enemy. Even those who may have said, David, are you sure you want to bring in one of Saul's heirs, his grandson, into the kingdom, right into your, right under your table? That's love. See, you are God's enemy. So I don't hate God. I'm not saying you hated God. I'm just saying before you receive Christ, you are as if you are the enemy of his. In Romans chapter 5, for when we were enemies, it says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Aren't you glad that God showed grace to all us enemies? All when we didn't love him, when we didn't care about him, when we had no use for God, when we didn't want God, he still showed us love. So the first reason that David showed, showed Mephibosheth this grace was love, but the second was a promise It was a promise he made to Jonathan. Listen to what it says. This conversation between Jonathan and David. He says this. And thou shalt not only while I yet live show me kindness of the Lord that I die not. But also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. Those are the words of Jonathan. No not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David. Every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Jonathan had a promise. David had a promise. And David, years later, looks back on his promise with his friend Jonathan and says, i got to keep my promise. i got to look and see if there's one, if there's even one of his heirs, one of Saul's heirs, that I can keep my promise. And if a, listen, if a, if a earth person, if a human can keep a promise... Even though we don't always, but if a human can keep a promise sometimes, imagine how God can keep a promise. God loved us so much, he sent his son to die. But it's not just that, he gave us promises. He promised, the Bible says. In fact, he said, whereby uh, are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. One of those is... promises is if you'll call upon him Bible says he'll save you that's a promise he's shown you his love and he's given you his promise in the same way David gave his to Jonathan so now David sends to Lodibar with instructions to bring Mephibosheth to his palace I have a feeling when Mephibosheth opened the door and there stood all these servants and soldiers of David he knew the jig was up I got a, had a good run. I hid for a long time, but it's over now. Hey, are you Mephibosheth? That's me. Come with us. They loaded him up and brought him to the king's palace, ushered him in as he walks on a crutch, no doubt, and dragging his crippled feet. What would the king say? What would the king say? Do How bad of a death will I die? Maybe a servant if I'm lucky. Nope, you're a son. You're going to eat at my table like one of my own. Adopted into a new family, received into a new home, received his inheritance, sitting at the king's table. And can I tell you, all of those things apply to you. You can be adopted into a new family. You can be received into a new home. Into an inheritance that's incorruptible. And you can be seated at his table. One writer wrote it this way. Faster than you can say Mephibosheth twice. He gets promoted from Lodibar to the king's table. Goodbye, obscurity, hello, royalty and reality. Note that David could have sent money to Lodibar. A lifelong annuity would have been generously fulfilled, his promise. But David gave Mephibosheth more than a pension. He gave him a place, a place at the royal table. The kid who had no legs to stand on has everything to live for. Amen. Why? Because he impressed David Convince David, coerce David. No, Mephibosheth did nothing. A promise promoted David. The king is kind, not because the boy is deserving, but because the promise is enduring. From that point on, Mephibosheth is considered one of David's sons with all the rights and the privileges that that would bring. And the most pre- precious for Mephibosheth, no doubt, would have been those times When he sits at this great banquet table and in front of him is a meal, literally fit for a king. And the best part is no one can see your feet when you're sitting at the king's table. Can I tell you that God takes all kinds. He says to the sinner, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says to the prodigal, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says to the backslider, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says to the most vile and wicked. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says to the religious, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says to the proud, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He, listen, he says to all races... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says to all those who are crippled by sin, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says to every potential bus kid in this city, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Why would he do all that? Why would David go to all that trouble? Because of love and a promise. why Why would God take me? Why would he take you? Same. Listen to Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Titus says, "In hope of eternal life, life which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began." It's because of grace through His love, because of His promise. Think of this: when God looks down from heaven at you and me. You know what he doesn't see? Thank God. He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my failure. He doesn't see the times I let him down. He doesn't see when in pride I wander from him and go my own way. He doesn't see those things. And it's not because I'm good or somehow I've earned something or I deserve something. It's because when he sees me, he sees me through his blood of Jesus my sins are under his blood and my faults and failures were paid for on the cross and nobody sees my feet when I'm at the king's table. I was like that Mephibosheth and I was crippled and twisted pride and hiding from God in a barren place where he could not find me and not give me what I deserved but somehow he found me and I don't understand, but he gave me what I certainly don't deserve. And not only spared me in a desolate place from a desolate life, but he made me bountiful and I get to sit at his table. Amen. I don't know where you are, but if you're away from Christ, if you don't know him, you are in Lodabar. And God in love... And because of his promises makes it possible for you to know him. And you can this morning know Christ. Know the forgiveness of sins. And knows what it means to have your life changed. You can this morning. He loves you. He proved it on the cross and he promised. If you call upon him he'll make you one of his sons. No matter your past. No matter how bad you've been. Doesn't matter what your name is, or where you're from, or what color you are, or what side of town you live. Jesus offers you today salvation. And when you're sitting at His table, nobody sees your feet. Would you bow with me? Before I pray, I would ask a couple questions first. Is there one who would say, Brother Ted, I don't know Christ as my savior. I don't know if I died where I would spend eternity, but I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned enough that I would want you to pray for me. I don't know if tomorrow if, or today, if it was my last day on earth, I don't know where I would be. I don't know if I would be in heaven. In fact, I'm so concerned about it. I just want you to pray for me I'm not going to come or talk to you. No one else is. But I do want to know who to pray for. And if that's you, if you're not sure about your salvation, would you raise your hand long enough for me to see it? And we'll pray for you here in just a minute. Yes, sir, I see your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Pray for me, Brother Ted. I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that my sins are forgiven, but I'm concerned about it. Anyone else? There's been ones. Raise your hand. Anyone else? Pray for me, Brother Ted, about my salvation. I'm really concerned about it. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Anyone else? Before I pray, I'm not sure I'm saved. Brother Ted, would you pray for me? Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for this one that's raised his hand. And there may be more right in this room who don't know Christ, who don't know for sure that their sins have been forgiven. But Lord, they, you have proved by your love and by your promise that your grace extends to all No matter how bad they've been, no matter their name, no matter where they're from, no matter what color of their skin, God, you and your grace extends to everyone. In our time of invitation, I pray that if there's one who doesn't know Christ, that they would come and let us take a Bible and show them how to be saved this morning. And if you've dealt with anyone else in any way, any believer in this room you've dealt with in some way, maybe you're talking to some about bus ministry, or some other ministry to hear the church. I pray that they would, would uh, submit to whatever you're asking of them today. However, you've spoken, have your will done in our invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.